This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. When you think of a rover, I bet your mind lands on Mars, right? Dusty red rocks and the noisy whir of the wheels of a rolling laboratory slowly, patiently examining a strange planet to understand its past. Well, I do when I think of it. But did you know that we have rovers right here on Earth? 4,000 meters, that's about two and a half miles below the surface of the ocean, exploring the depths of an abyssal plain is one such rover, the Benthic Rover 2. And it's not looking for signs of past life. No, instead, it's looking for data that might tell us about our future on a warming, uncertain planet. Here with me to talk about this deep-sea explorer and the work it's patiently doing year after year after year are my guests. Dr. Alana Sherman, head of the Electrical Engineering Group at MBARI, that's the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and Dr. Chrissy Hufford, Senior Research Specialist and Ecologist at MBARI. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Thanks for having us. First of all, tell us what this rover looks like, Alana. Well, the rover is about the size of a small SUV, and it's a tracked vehicle like a tank. So it has two treads, one on each side of the rover. And it has these large titanium spheres that are about 17 inches in diameter. And those spheres, there's three of them on the rover, and they carry the electronics and the batteries for the rover. And then it has flotation, uh, which helps the rover not be too heavy underwater. Um, and that flotation actually, it looks like plastic and it's a type of foam, um, but it is very solid. Um, and so and it's brightly colored so that when the rover comes to the surface, we can see it uh, on the surface. Yeah, it's good to have that. Chrissy, you know, when I looked at it, it looked to me like that cartoon Wally a little bit. Do, 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 you, do you anthropomorphize it to look like people? You know, we do think of it as a pretty charismatic team member on, you know, in the lab. And we do definitely notice that it has uh, these little foam packs right in front that look like eyes. Um, so, yeah, we add a little human nature to it. We used to joke that, you know, the rover was my baby because I worked on it for so long. And then I had two non-robotic babies and I realized that it was by far my most uh my one child that actually did what I said to do. <laughs> and it's rolling around on the seafloor. Give us a little mental picture of the abyssal plain environment, where it is, what surrounds it. Chrissy? So the abyssal plain covers a very large portion of our Earth. The Benthic Rover 2 operates at the base of a feature called the Monterey Deep Sea Fan, where that meets the abyssal plain. And the abyssal plain on Earth is a big, expansive, muddy, open, relatively flat habitat compared to what we're used to seeing on land. Mm -hmm. and, and what kinds of stuff is down there? What kind of cool stuff does it see? Well, our idea of what's charismatic really changes based on the habitat we're looking in. In the deep sea, we have many animals that deep sea ecologists consider pretty charismatic. We have swimming sea cucumbers. We have very large-eyed fish. Uh, we have squat lobsters or little crabs that have little 
um, spiky projections all over them. It's a really different set of animals compared to what we're used to seeing in shallow waters. And Alana, is is this an easy environment for a robot or not? I mean, two and a half miles down, it's tremendous water pressure and all kinds of stuff that could it could get into trouble with. It is a very challenging environment for a robot in many ways. You named the pressure, which is true that the pressure on the seafloor where we operate is 6,000 pounds per square inch. You also have the corrosive effects of seawater and it's also very, very cold. So these are all challenges that taken together are hard to replicate in the lab. So it uh, makes for uh, the need for doing very robust engineering to make it out there for a year at a time. Would you say it's more difficult to engineer this than maybe the, one of the Mars rovers? <laughs> well, I don't want to say that uh, because I think there's a, a whole slew of challenges involved in making the Mars rover. But they do have the advantage that they can communicate with it daily and um, they could potentially, you know, interact with the software there. Whereas once we deploy our rover for a year, we have very limited communications and no way to really very little ways to change what it's is operating. Oh, is that right? So it's like it's really a robot. It's autonomous. It's not like you have a little hand controller that you're working <laughs> two and a half miles above it. We often debate whether we should like make a little robotic hand in there that can press <laughs> buttons, but <laughs> we haven't gotten to that point yet. But it is truly autonomous. Uh, the most we do is we occasionally send another autonomous robot to check on our autonomous robot, this is a surface vessel that can go there and speak with it acoustically. But that's a very limited bandwidth, and it also does not work very well uh, in heavy sea states. Mm -hmm. And Chrissy, what is it? What is its mission? I mean, what is it doing down there? What is it collecting? What is it? You know, what is it learning? So the Benthic Rover's core mission is to help us understand how much carbon is being consumed in the deep sea. And so it does this with little respirometry chambers that measure oxygen drawdown, and from that we can calculate carbon consumption. But one of the advantages of the rover is that it also has the space to put on other types of sensors and other ways of collecting the data and understanding the deep sea. So it has cameras, a fluorescence imaging system, it has a current meter, and with these other data sets we're able to get a pretty decent picture of what's happening down there. We can tell when lots of food is coming down. We can tell when the animal community changes through its pictures of the seafloor. And we can tell the influence of these changes in the carbon cycle on changes in things like, for example, oxygen concentration in the nearby waters. This time series is over 30 years old, and every time we bring the instruments up, we find something completely new. Not stuck to the instruments, I'm, I'm <laughs> No, luckily not. And, and why are robots better than people to do this kind of research? Uh, well, it would be very hard to have a person uh, living resident at 4,000 meters, walking around, taking measurements with an oxygen sensor. So uh, robots are able to endure in these environments, like like the Mars rover, that are hard for people to exist mm -hmm. in. 
Mm -hmm. And Chrissy, tell me about what you're really trying to understand. You said something about you're trying to understand the, the carbon cycle in the oceans. Uh, why do you need to know that? What What is the ultimate, you know, bit of knowledge you want to grasp here? Yeah, so as we know, humans have put a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And a big question that scientists have generally is where does that carbon go? And the ocean takes up a large amount of that carbon dioxide. 25% of the carbon dioxide we've put into the atmosphere has been taken up by the ocean. And a lot of that makes its way into the deep sea. And if carbon makes its way to the deep sea in a way that it won't exchange again with the atmosphere anytime soon, that can qualify as deep sea carbon sequestration. So when the deep sea takes up carbon, it pulls it away from the atmosphere where it won't warm us and you know continue to do uh, the harm that we think of as associated with climate change. So we're measuring how much carbon makes its way to the very deep sea, 4,000 meters depth, which is the average ocean depth. And we're also interested in what happens to that carbon once it gets there. Does it get consumed right away, which is what the benthic rover tells us? Or might it actually, might some of it be stored in the sediments over longer time periods? In the surface waters, phytoplankton can take that carbon dioxide and turn it into food. When that food sinks, it brings that carbon down as food to the deep sea, which is an important base of the food, food chain down there. And when the, that food is eaten in the deep sea, the microbes and organisms, animals down there take in that food and they respire carbon dioxide down there. And that dissolves into, you know, into the seawater and it makes the seawater acidic down there. So the deep sea is experiencing ocean acidification, just like the surface waters are. We're, we're trying to figure out how much of that carbon makes its way down there and what its role is ecologically, whether it gets eaten right away or it might get stored in the sediments. Would it be possible to sequester extra CO2 we have above the surface down deep down there? Well, the big challenge is doing that in a way that doesn't harm deep sea ecosystems. And if if we dump lots of carbon into the deep sea in any way, shape or form that could be treated as food, then that carbon will be eaten and that will be released into the deep sea as carbon dioxide and it'll acidify our deep ocean. It will also take up lots of oxygen and so that will deoxygenate our deep ocean and potentially lead to dead zones. The times when we see some carbon might be stored in the sediments, that's just periods when there's so much coming down in these very brief, what we call pulse events, that the animal and microbe communities can't keep up and there's a little bit left over. And these pulse events are happening, why? Good question. Um, we think this is traced back to what's happening in the surface in our climate. As the land is heating up more, it's driving stronger seasonal winds off of our shores, which is driving stronger upwelling and phytoplankton growth in surface waters. And that just brings more food into the ocean and some of that makes its way to the deep sea. But what exactly determines how much of these pulse events make their way to the deep sea, we still are trying to figure out. Interesting. You know, the bottom of the ocean, the deep parts of the ocean, we, we've said for many years that we know more about the surface of the moon, maybe now about the surface of Mars, 
than we know about the, the bottom of the ocean. Do either of you ever feel a bit like you're helping explore another planet or does it feel unfair to compare the oceans to another planet or to the moon? For me as a biologist, I don't think of this as this alien habitat, these alien life forms. I think of them as my neighbors. You know, I'm closer right now to a whale or some of these deep sea animals than I am to a grizzly bear, our state animal. And so I feel very linked to these animals through my actions and through what happens in the climate and the surface waters. And what I do can, you know, a breath, one out of every four breaths that I exhale are taken up by the ocean. And some of that carbon from me might make its way to the deep sea. Wow. I've never heard that explained quite like that. Alana, what about you? Other, other planets or the ocean? Oh, well, I, I would say the ocean personally. I mean, unlike Chrissy, I, I don't know if I feel like it's another planet, but it is definitely so ripe for exploration and discovery. You know, as Chrissy said, every time we bring up the instruments, we find something new. It is stuff we're finding that's relevant to our existence. You know, I, I find that um, is very motivating and it's fascinating uh and so many levels, biologically, the chemistry, the geology, all of it is pretty exciting. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking to Alana Sherman and Chrissy Hufford about sending rovers to the bottom of the sea. If you had a blank check, which I have back here in my pocket, if you can reach it, and you could use it to build instruments or to do something with it to answer questions that you can't now answer, build a new kind of robot. Alana, what would you do with it? When I first started my career, someone suggested that the ideal would be a robot that could follow a piece of marine snow from the surface to the seafloor. And I think that's a goal we're still kind of working towards. So I would build an autonomous underwater robot that had the ability to track an object, whether it was marine snow or a or an animal and be able to stay with it for long periods of time. A lot of the questions that we try to answer in the ocean require, just like the rover does, these sustained observations. Um, otherwise, you miss the most important thing, like the pulses that Chrissy mentioned. If the rover wasn't there all the time, we would miss these pulses that may only be a few days out of a year. And that's true of other phenomena in the ocean. Okay, now... Chrissy, Alana's decided to share her blank check with you. Of course. And I absolutely love what Alana has chosen to do with that blank check because I share that same desire for sustained tracked observations. And um, so many of the questions that we have about animals in the deep sea and ecosystems relate to time. And the Station M time series has given us this long perspective of how climate has changed the deep ocean. And the next questions we have are how and through what mechanisms. But we're even trying to get a basic information like how long do animals live? We don't know that for almost all deep sea organisms. And the technologies that Alana described would help us get at that. And you also have, you know, a lack of people knowing what you're actually doing down there, right? Everybody sees pictures from Mars and the rovers. We don't see much coming up from the ocean bottom. 
in your rover. Is there any kind of exploration, deep sea exploration, on, on, until somebody sends something to the Titanic or something like that? I think that uh, the ocean provides, from an engineering perspective, I think it provides a lot of really interesting challenges. And um, I certainly, when I was in engineering school, did not know about this area of engineering. And I think uh, from a science perspective, it's very relevant to our lives. And I think it's so ever-present that maybe we kind of forget about it. Alana, what got you into this kind of engineering in the first place? I mean, sending scientific instruments into the ocean. Um, Well, I really wanted to um, build scientific instruments. And I thought that maybe that would mean working in some biotech laboratory or something like that. But I had heard about Imbari, that really aligned with my desire to uh, use engineering towards making scientific discoveries. But I never stepped foot on a boat until my first week here. And that was an exciting day too, which I don't have time to tell you about. (laughs) We don't have time for it either. I'm sorry we've run out of time. I want to thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. That was our pleasure. Dr. Alana Sherman, head of the Electrical Engineering Group at Imbari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and Dr. Chrissy Hufford, Senior Research Specialist and Ecologist at Imbari.